Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. If you haven't already done so, please make sure the volume of this podcast is set perfectly to your listening enjoyment. Please take your seat, whether that's on the treadmill, car, sofa, or bed, and buckle in for the last trip. My name is Jamie Beebe, and I'll be your tour guide, recreating someone's last days in paradise. On behalf of myself and everyone behind the scenes, please enjoy the Last Trip podcast. And because nobody likes a long flight to get to where they want to be, let's prepare for takeoff. Our victim today is Max Castor, a 20-year-old tourist from Sweden who disappeared while visiting Australia. He was last seen at Port Campbell on April 1st, 2005 after being dropped off by a bus company and again later that afternoon walking along the highway towards Apollo Bay. He has not been seen or heard from since. Max disappeared under extremely mysterious circumstances, and it's entirely possible he's still out there. Where is Max Castor? Hey guys, we're headed to the land down under in this case. I remember looking at maps when I was a kid and thinking Australia was a fairly small island in the middle of the ocean. But Australia is a huge country and continent. It's actually the world's sixth largest country with approximately 7.7 million square kilometers. In relation to the United States, it's almost the same size if you take out Alaska. That's a lot of land to cover when you're looking for a missing person. I actually didn't know much about Australia before I dove into this case, so let's cover some misconceptions. The Crocodile Dundee accent is how all Australians sound. Nope, that's a myth. There's actually various accents across the country depending on the region, and the accent in the film is wildly exaggerated. There's dangerous wildlife everywhere. That's a myth, kind of. While there are a surprising amount of creatures that can randomly kill you in Australia, the idea that every encounter with animals in Australia is life-threatening is a misconception. Most Australians live in urban areas and rarely encounter dangerous wildlife, But if you're in the bush, you might want to keep an eye out for anything that moves. There are kangaroos hopping down the streets throughout Australia. Nope, that's a myth. While kangaroos are native to Australia, they're similar to seeing a bear or deer in the U.S. They're out there, but they mostly keep to themselves and aren't in urban areas. Also, I hate to crush anyone's dreams, but toilets in Australia flush in the same direction as in other parts of the world. The direction of water flow in a toilet is primarily influenced by the design and mechanics of the toilet itself. Australia has a pretty long and complex history, so I'll give you an extremely brief breakdown. Before 1770, Australia was inhabited by Indigenous people, including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. The Indigenous people of Australia have a rich history that dates back tens of thousands of years. The population is diverse with numerous distinct language groups, cultural practices, and traditions. It's estimated that there were over 250 different language groups before European colonization. The fundamental concept for Australian Aboriginal cultures is called Dreamtime, or the Dreaming, or Jukurpa, if I said that right. It's kind of an all-encompassing array of creation stories that explain how ancestral beings, usually in the form of animals or human-like figures, shaped the landscape, created the flora and fauna, and established the culture. Dreamtime is also deeply tied to the land, so geographic features like mountains or rivers or rock formations are believed to have been created or influenced by these ancestral beings during Dreamtime. And Dreamtime is told through stories, art, dance, singing, ceremonies, and rituals. 
But Dreamtime is an ongoing thing. It's not just the creation, but rather they see it as a timeless and ever-present reality. It continues to influence their lives today, and that concept shows in how the culture has adapted and survived throughout history. Because the arrival of European settlers in the late 18th century had a profound and devastating impact on Aboriginal communities. Europeans took the land, there was violence, and the introduction of diseases which led to significant social and cultural disruptions. One movement, later called the Stolen Generations, that began in the late 19th century and continued well into the 20th century was the policy of removing indigenous children from their families. Today, it's recognized as a grave injustice and human rights violation. It was motivated by misguided notions of assimilation, paternalism, and the belief that removing indigenous children from their cultural environment would lead to the integration into mainstream Australian society. Children were forcibly removed from their families without parental consent or proper legal procedures. That obviously caused profound trauma and grief within indigenous families. Parents had no idea of their children's whereabouts, and children were deprived of their cultural identity, language, and the connection to their communities. A lot of these children were placed in institutions, missions, or foster care, where they had to endure harsh conditions and were completely denied access to their culture. This has caused a lot of intergenerational trauma because it's had lasting effects on not only the individuals, but also the emotional and psychological toll has been passed down through generations. In the 21st century, there was national acknowledgement of this atrocity and efforts have been made to provide compensation and support for those affected by the stolen generations. And there's a lot more to the history of Australia because there was also a time Britain decided to ship many of their criminals there. In 1770, British explorer Captain James Cook arrived and when he went back to Britain, he told them all about the giant island. Britain decided it would be a great place to establish a penal colony So in 1788, the first fleet ship arrived at Botany Bay and Sydney was founded as a penal settlement, and that marked the beginning of British colonization. They did this because in the 18th century, Britain faced severe overcrowding in its prisons, so they figured they'd just transport them to a distant place as a form of punishment and a way to remove criminals from society. For several decades after that, Britain transported a lot of their convicts to Australia, But a common myth is that the people in Australia are all descendants of these criminals, and that's just not true. Australia is actually a huge melting pot of many countries settling there. In the 1850s, gold was discovered in the country, particularly in Victoria. Of course, this led to a huge influx of migrants and also economic growth. The gold rush had a huge impact on the development of cities and the Australian economy, By 1901, there were six Australian colonies, and on January 1st, they federated to form the Commonwealth of Australia. After World War II, Australia experienced another wave of immigration, mostly from Europe. In the 1960s came the Indigenous Rights Movement. This was a movement advocating for land rights, recognition, and social justice because the Indigenous Australians had faced so much discrimination throughout Australia's history. International tourism to Australia really took off in the later half of the 20th century as iconic landmarks like the Sydney Opera House, Great Barrier Reef, and Ayers Rock gained global attention. The company Tourism Australia had a lot to do with the rise in visitors. They had some really great marketing campaigns that managed to capture people's imaginations about Australia. Today, Australia continues to evolve as a modern, multicultural nation. Being that Australia is such a vast area, we'll focus on the southwestern coast where our victim was last seen. 
It's known that Max wanted to check the Great Ocean Road, which is a coastal road in southern Australia. He had learned about it as a kid and it was always a dream of his to see it. And it's not a short trek. It stretches 151 miles or 243 kilometers along the whole southeastern coast of Australia in the state of Victoria. The road was constructed as a memorial to the soldiers who died in World War I and was built by returning servicemen between 1919 and 1932. It's known for its stunning scenery, dramatic cliffs, and iconic rock formations. The journey typically begins in Torquay, which is a popular surfing destination located about 62 miles southwest of Melbourne, and it winds its way westward to Allensford. One of the most famous attractions along the Great Ocean Road is the Twelve Apostles, which is a collection of limestone stacks standing off the shore. And despite the name, there were never actually 12 of them, and erosion caused some more to collapse over the years, so I think there's actually eight now. Another notable feature is the Lockard Gorge, a stunning gorge with steep limestone cliffs and clear blue waters. It's named after the ship Lockard, which ran aground nearby in 1878. Formerly known as London Bridge, the London Arc is a natural arc formation that was once connected to the mainland, but in 1990, part of the arc collapsed, leaving it isolated from the shore. Also on the Great Ocean Road is the Grotto, a geological formation featuring a sinkhole and natural arc. It offers a really unique view of the coastline. You can visit the Gibson Steps, which provide access to the beach below the towering cliffs and offers a close-up view of the coastal rock formations. The Great Ocean Road also passes through the Great Otway National Park, which is a rainforest full of lush greenery, waterfalls, and lots of wildlife. There are several towns along the road, including Lorne, Apollo Bay, and Warnambool, which are all places Max was seen before he went missing. Weather conditions along the Great Ocean Road can vary. Max was there in April, which is autumn, in Australia. It's normally mild temperatures and fewer crowds that time of year, with the average daytime temperature around 15 to 20 degrees Celsius or 59 to 69 degrees Fahrenheit. So it wasn't super cold, but definitely not warm by my standards. And there's also the possibility of rain, huge waves, and rough seas. There are marked trails, but if you don't stick to them, you're very likely to get lost, especially because parts of the road have limited or no cell service, and between towns, it can get pretty remote. Once you're off the beaten path, the threat of wildlife is very real. There are snakes, spiders, insects, and lots of other animals that can severely injure or kill you. Warrnambool is the largest city on the Great Ocean Road, it's situated on the shores of Lady Bay along the Southern Ocean, and it's about 265 kilometers southwest of Melbourne. A lot of tourists go to Warrnambool to visit Logan's Beach, which is known for whale watching. The southern right whales visit between June and September to calve, and they're pretty easy to spot. Also, the Tower Hill Wildlife Reserve near Warrnambool is a volcanic crater that was revegetated and is now a haven for wildlife like kangaroos, emus, and various bird species. Warrnambool is also right along the Shipwreck Coast, a dramatic 80-mile stretch of jagged cliffs and deep gorges. It's estimated that nearly 700 ships have wrecked along the coastline. In fact, you can still see many of the ships through the surf and even spot old rusty anchors along the beach. Another attraction is the Colac Botanic Gardens, which is home to hundreds of thousands of bats including the gray-headed flying fox, which are now listed as a vulnerable species by the International Union for Conservation of Nature. Apollo Bay is home to amazing sandy beaches that are ideal for swimming, so that's likely where I would be hanging out. 
The town is surrounded by the Great Otway National Park, where people go bushwalking, hiking, and exploring in the rainforest. A short drive from Apollo Bay is Mate's Rest, a well-known rainforest path carved through the ancient trees. Australia is such an amazing and unique country with so much to explore. I personally can't wait to check it out. But right now, let's learn more about who Max Castor was and what he was doing in Australia and where he could possibly be now. Max was born on April 29, 1985 in Hegerston, Sweden, which is the southwestern part of Stockholm. He was born into a family of five with an older brother, Martin, and sister, Olu. Both of his parents were happily married and worked in academia. Max had a wonderful, normal childhood and a great relationship with his family and friends. He was happy growing up and loved learning, although he had mild dyslexia. Because of that, he had trouble reading and writing, so he struggled with school and didn't have the best grades. He loved watching documentaries, especially about Australia and the vast outdoors of the country. He was fascinated with the lifestyle and felt going to the country would give him an opportunity to live a different way of life than what he would in Sweden. He learned a lot about the nature of Australia as well as the history. His favorite Australian documentaries included Prison, which was about the lives of the inmates they shipped in from Britain, and The Flying Doctors, about the medical professionals that were deployed throughout the remote Australian outback. When Max was nine years old, he joined the Guides and Scouts of Sweden, which is similar to the Boy Scouts of America. There he was taught outdoor survival skills, teamwork and leadership, and life skills. He also grew up trekking in the north of Sweden with his mom and sister. The terrain was vast, hilly, and mountainous, but he loved it and loved being in nature. Although he didn't do that well in school, Max was extremely intelligent and could easily pick up on creative labor-type jobs like building things, outdoor work, and arts and crafts. His father said if you showed him how to do something once, he would be able to pick it right up and figure out a way to improve it. As Max became a teenager, his outlook started to change. He hated the idea of working a 9-to-5 job, especially with the high unemployment rates in Sweden at the time. He was actively against the work-everyday lifestyle that his parents had and just couldn't see himself living that way. He started researching and learning more about alternative lifestyles and started smoking weed, like many kids do when they question what life has in store for them. A friend that grew up with Max said he was a bit of an adrenaline junkie. He was a risk-taker who loved walking along narrow rock ledges or climbing cliffs. When he finished school, he wasn't sure what he wanted to do, and thinking about his future in Sweden was weighing on him. He thought life was too focused on money, and he wanted to live a more spiritual existence. He saw Australia as the land of the future, and his dream was to go there. So after school, he got a one-year working holiday visa and planned his trip. His family thought he was going to be gone for the year to briefly escape the life of working full-time in Sweden that was waiting for him when he came home. But looking back years later, maybe he never had plans to go home. When Max was 19 years old, he set off to his dreamland of Australia. He was a good-looking kid with shoulder-length, blonde wavy hair, slim but healthy-looking, and excited for his trip. Max planned this trip of a lifetime with his two best friends, and on October 19, 2004, the three of them flew from Stockholm to Sydney. When they landed, they bought a cheap, old, used car and headed straight to the coast of Byron Bay in New South Wales. From there, the three boys ventured further up the coast, picking up odd jobs along the way. 
They picked apples and washed dishes for money. Jobs kids their age could easily find in those years. They were enjoying their days diving, surfing, and meeting people that had the alternative type of lifestyles that Max was looking for. They continued along their journey, and after six months, they made it to Brisbane. But when they got there, Max's two friends decided it was time to go back to Sweden. It's not known why his friends left when they did. Maybe they had a six-month visa, or they were just tired of life on the road. But either way, they said their goodbyes to Max and flew home. From Brisbane, Max boarded a flight to Melbourne. From Melbourne, he went to Geelong, which is about 45 miles or 71 kilometers away. He could have hitchhiked or taken a train or bus. In Geelong, he invested in some hiking gear because he was ready to tackle the Great Ocean Road on foot. Doing that would have taken him about 55 hours walking or a little over 4 hours driving if you don't make any stops along the road. After Geelong, he was seen around the Otways National Park and then made his way down the south coast to Warrnambool. On March 29, 2005, just one month before his 20th birthday, Max emailed his sister and said he was waiting for his trekking tour along the Great Ocean Road, but the weather was a bit too cold. He also wished his family a happy Easter, and anything else that was said in the email was never publicly released. It's likely he joined a trucking company for his journey, and it was delayed or canceled due to bad weather, but that could never be verified. Somewhere between the 24th and 30th of March, Max closed his Australian bank accounts and withdrew all his money. He had a Swedish bank account and Visa card with him, which he left open, although it hasn't been touched since February 28, 2005. On March 31st, Max went to the local post office in Warrnambool and spent $250 to pack up all his belongings into four boxes and mail them home to Sweden. Inside the boxes were books, gifts for his family, photos of himself, his return plane ticket to Sweden, the last of his money, and several letters. It's important to note that his passport and bank card were not in the packages. The letters he sent were addressed to his brother and two of his friends, presumably the friends he'd been traveling throughout Australia with earlier. The letters said, Something strange has happened to me and I don't know how to cope with it. I am tired of myself, but there is still so much beauty in the world. Things will change in the future. Now I am vanishing. I love you all. No tears. Oddly, the letter to his brother Martin was written in English rather than Swedish, and some people thought he would have gotten help writing the letter, but his father wasn't convinced of that, saying Max was very clever. Although many people believed the letter to be a suicide note, his father wasn't at all convinced of that, later saying the goodbye letter did not indicate that he took his own life. As a parent, I gave him a few extra dollars that he could keep in his shoe. I saw Max returning it as a slap in the face and a goodbye. I believe he has found some type of other community and could be living off the land, maybe even with a wife and kid. I wouldn't be the least bit astonished. April 1st, 2005 was the last official and confirmed sighting of Max. He took a bus from Warrnambool to Port Campbell, about an hour's ride, and was dropped off at the bus station. He was then allegedly seen walking at Kennet River East along the Great Ocean Highway towards Apollo Bay at approximately 3.30 that afternoon past some road workers. Someone came forward and said they offered him a ride, but he refused and told the person he was okay. This was the last officially confirmed sighting of Max, but since then, there have been many unconfirmed sightings. On April 5th, Max went into a general store in Y River and told the shopkeeper he didn't have any money and was looking for a campsite. The shopkeeper said she gave him a bottle of water, and he told her he was heading north. 
And that makes sense because there is a pathway that follows the coastline along the Great Ocean Road from the Kennet River to the Wye River through the Great Otway National Park. It would have taken him about 5 hours to walk the 20 miles if he didn't stop along the way. On April 21, 2005, Max sent another email to his family, but the contents of it were never released. Also that same day, his family received his four packages, and that's when the alarm bells were sounded. Max's dad, Rolf Kaster, made an emergency call to the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, the Swedish immigration staff in Australia, and also the Victoria Police, who launched an immediate investigation into his disappearance. Rolf also called the Warrnambool Post Office looking for any possible leads, and when he talked to the postmaster that helped Max mail the packages, he was able to confirm it was Max at the post office that day, and the postmaster described him as a little tense. Because of the nature of the letter, police searched the locations where people commonly commit suicide and scoured the area with helicopters, but found nothing to indicate Max had taken his own life. There were more unconfirmed sightings of Max in the following weeks that placed him near Lorne and Apollo Bay, which are north of the Wye River, the direction he told the shopkeeper he was headed. Another report, just a day before his 20th birthday, stated that Max was picked up while hitchhiking and headed to Cowra in New South Wales. During this time, Rolf was spending his days looking for his son from Sweden. He sent emails to communities, hostels, Facebook groups, and chat rooms across Australia asking people to look for Max, begging for any information at all. Missing person posters were distributed throughout Australia by police and throughout the internet by his family. They were making sure people could recognize Max and come forward if they saw him. One post from Rolf on the Great Ocean Road website heartbreakingly said, I have a son that's disappeared in your area. Any good ideas where to look? Got peculiar goodbye letter. Hard to interpret. Do you have groups living outside the normal community attracting youths with alternative living? He also said, if dead, where should I ask? On May 4th, 2005, there was another sighting of Max sitting alone on a bench in Lorne. But police weren't notified until about two hours after the sighting, and by then the man on the bench was gone. Sightings of Max were coming in and followed up with, but nothing panned out. Through the years, his father's search for him continued and intensified. On December 26, 2005, Max's case caught the attention of the International Reward Center, a private organization that offers rewards to people who help find missing and wanted people. They offered a $5,000 reward for any information about Max, but nothing has ever come of it. Max's dad became a fixture in many different online forums, chatting with people, asking if they've seen his son, and giving updates. In 2008, he wrote, Now it's been more than four years since he disappeared, and it's quite empty of new information. After thinking for a while, I've decided to lie low. Max is alive. He knows where the family is, and if he wants to have contact, it is up to him. He is of age, but it feels sad not to know his fate, and it disturbs the night's sleep quite often. At a guess, he calls himself something else and keeps a low profile. Checked with our foreign ministry, who did a very good job, what happens if he is noticed? Well, then he is probably detained as an illegal, and they will do an investigation into what he did during the time he was illegal in the country. If he has behaved himself, it will be a short sentence and sent home at his own expense. So I understand if he lies low and bans father who is looking for him. The passport expires in 2013. In 2009, Max was seen by a Swedish girl who had been following the story. She said she was in a small town a little way down the East Coast, he rode up on a bike to the local store and bought groceries and then left. 
She said she recognized him from the new photos Ralph had added to the extensive Facebook page he built to help find Max. On August 7, 2010, Max's case was featured as part of National Missing Persons Week in Australia to increase awareness, but still no useful information came in. In April of 2012, Rolf underwent heart surgery, which he posted on his Facebook page, hoping Max was somewhere following it and would see what was going on and reach out. Also in 2012, Sweden asked the Castor family for samples of their DNA, but not because they found a body, it was just to have on file as they went through their cold cases. In 2013, a Swedish security officer living in Australia with her partner saw a man she swears was Max steal some basic food items from a local store in Merwillimba a town in far northeastern New South Wales. She told Ralph he picked up the necessities, like eggs and milk, before racing away on an old rusty bicycle. Ralph sent her additional photos of Max, and she said she was 95% sure it was him. Again in 2013, a woman from Australia contacted Max's dad and said she sat down at a cafe in Sydney at Central Station when a wind-driven man with a badly healed broken leg came and asked her for $20. She told him she didn't have any money, and he described himself as homeless and left. She thought she recognized his face, although he now had a beard and short hair, so she searched the missing person's website and was convinced it was Max. April 29, 2015 would have been Max's 30th birthday, and his father was still convinced he was alive and living somewhere off-grid in a cult or an alternative type of lifestyle. In October of 2015, a woman reported seeing three men, one she thought was Max, selling fish on a ferry traveling between Stockton and Newcastle in New South Wales. She alerted the authorities, but again, the sighting didn't pan out. In 2018, Rolf was still searching and reaching out to people about Max. He said that Max's brother and sister and friends had continued their lives and were now married with children. Max had five nephews and nieces that he had never met. Thinking about Max's fate and speculating what happened to him was a painful topic in the family. His father believed he was still alive and was waiting for him to contact them. Many of his friends also believe he was still alive and living in Australia, or perhaps he moved on to another country. In fact, there were reports of sightings in Indonesia and Vietnam, and there was once a call from a Canadian tourist in Indonesia who told them a guy just like Max was in Lombok. The tourist recognized him from his missing person poster. There are ways Max could have entered other countries, maybe by boat, but no travel records have ever been found. His Swedish passport has never been identified in any border crossing since entering Australia, and it expired in 2013. There have been over 100 unconfirmed reports and sightings of Max since he went missing, and his father believes about 20 of them to be genuine and confirmed in his mind. Max's family has never reported him dead because his father thinks he's alive, and also Sweden has stringent laws surrounding inheritance. While he was missing, Max inherited a large sum of money from the passing of a family member, and declaring him dead would make claiming it a nightmare if he returns. Sadly, Max's dad died in his sleep in May of 2020 at age 77, without ever getting any information about Max or knowing what happened to him. It was something that hung over him every day, and he never gave up or stopped looking for his son. Max's family worked very closely through the years with Detective Senior Sergeant Asenjo, and after Ralph's death, he hoped Max would come forward, stating to the media, We've had no indication that Max is dead, and he was a young man in the prime of his life, so we do hold hope, like the Castor family, that he is out there somewhere, and if he is, maybe he is reading in the media that his father has passed. Many people are keeping the search for Max alive. 
In December of 2020, there was a video circulating in the online forums from Nimbin at a marijuana festival with a man in it that people thought could be Max, but nothing was confirmed. After his father's death, the Facebook page Help Us Find Max Kestor has since come down and most of his family has accepted Max's disappearance. But I'm hoping with any renewed interest in the case, including true crime podcasts like this one, maybe one day Max will be found. Max's dad believed Max was alive and walked away from his life to live some type of alternative lifestyle without money and conveniences of the modern world. He thought maybe he joined some type of cult and was brainwashed into never reaching out to his family again. He assumed Max was living off-grid somewhere in Australia, that he had met someone, had children because he loved kids so much. Rolf hoped that if he was a grandfather, one day his grandkids would question where they came from and somehow reach out. If that was the case, Max likely changed his name and looks because he no longer had a valid visa to stay in Australia and would be worried he'd be deported. Ralph believed Max might be living a little west of Byron Bay in some type of community or collective, and as long as he doesn't go to a hospital or cross the border, he's unlikely to be discovered. A woman who goes by the name Auntie Jack wrote on the online forums in 2008 that she had been in Australia for five months and thought he lived in a place called Milambimbi, which is kind of like a hippie town. The people who live like that are called pharaohs, and they live outside the community standards, and there are a lot of them. They are people who live on nothing, and they wouldn't hand him over for money or anything to the police, even if they knew that he was wanted. Rather, they would help hide him and offer him beer in a room, more so because he was looked for. Those who choose to live there feel they are better suited to live far out in the country without a job and only on what they grow. Max's dad was a loving father, not just to Max, but to all his kids, and Max's disappearance weighed heavily on him. It's hard to say if believing Max was alive was a way to cope with his missing son or if he really believed it, but either way, he never gave up the search. The detective often sent him photos of the Port Campbell area to help him feel a bit more connected to Max and the part of the world that he loved so much. Most of Max's friends believe he is alive, but they are concerned that they've never heard anything from him. They think Max might be living in a monastery in Asia, having gotten there on a boat without records or passport, or living in the north or east coast of Australia because that area has a more easygoing lifestyle that Max was attracted to. His brother and sister obviously knew him quite well. One thinks he's alive, and the other thinks he's dead. Max could be alive, but suffered some kind of mental break or accident and might not even know who he is. He might be one of the many homeless in Australia living on the streets, unnoticeable to the people who walk by him. In his last photos, he didn't look well. He lost a bunch of weight and was pretty disheveled. Some people said he looked like he was on drugs, and heroin was abundant at that time. Guys, of all the missing tourist cases I've covered, this one is highly unusual in that I really think Max is alive and simply chose to leave his life. I agree with his father that he decided to enter into a different type of lifestyle or even a cult, and he's still out there and hopefully still alive. But there are other theories. If he's dead, it could be for any number of reasons. Suicide is at the top of the list. The letters he sent home could have easily been a suicide note. Suicide might have been what he meant when he said he was going to vanish, and if he had killed himself somewhere in the deep outback, his body might never be found. 
He was confused about where his life was headed. He didn't want to be part of society anymore. He didn't have plans for his future. He got rid of all his belongings. Those are all pretty classic signs of suicide. If he had gotten into drugs, he could have OD'd or been murdered in that lifestyle. Maybe there was some kind of an accident. He could have drowned, been killed by an animal in the bush, caught in a flash flood, died from the elements or disease, eating a poisonous plant. The Australian outback is a very dangerous place, especially when you're alone. Max was known to hitchhike. While the United States takes the number one spot for serial killers, Australia is number 10 in the World Atlas report for countries with the most serial killers. It's possible he ran into someone who had more sinister plans for him. And we know there are bad people everywhere. There are any number of scenarios where he might have run into the wrong person and lost his life. Because there's no confirmed evidence of Max being alive or dead, I'd like to rule out accidents and foul play because from the package and letters he sent home, I feel like he did have a plan. Whether that was suicide or starting a new life, it was some type of a plan. I do think there's still hope that Max is alive after all these years. Next year, he'd be 40 years old and missing for 20 years. His father has passed away, but there are still so many people that miss him and want to know what happened. I hope one day they get their answers, and his family has always said he's welcome to come home no matter what. How can you stay safe in Australia? We debunked a few myths at the beginning of the episode, one being that there's dangerous wildlife roaming throughout the country. Well, there's no reason for fear, but there are definitely creatures that can kill you. Australia is home to some terrifying snakes. The eastern brown snake is highly venomous and responsible for the majority of snake bite fatalities in Australia. A tiger snake bite can be life-threatening without prompt medical treatment. The red-bellied black snake is common, and while their venom is not as potent as others, it can still cause serious illness. Copperhead bites are rarely fatal but can cause significant health issues. And, of course, the death adder, which is one of the most venomous snakes in the world, lives in Australia too. And while you're keeping an eye out for snakes, check for spiders. The redback spider is one of the most well-known venomous spiders in Australia, but the bites are rarely fatal because of the availability of antivenom. Although, if you are alone in the outback, there's no way to get help. Things aren't going to look good for you. Flannel spiders are one of the most venomous in the world. If you encounter one, you'll need immediate medical attention and antivenom. Water safety is crucial everywhere, but especially Australia. While many people think of sharks when they think of Australia, they should be the least of your worries considering there's usually about one fatal attack reported each year. It's more important to be aware of the dangerous rip currents. Rip currents are fast-flowing currents where the water flows out to the sea. They have deeper-colored dark water with fewer or no breaking waves, discolored brown water and foam on the surface beyond the breaking waves, and rippled water and debris floating out to sea. If you get caught in one, don't panic. Float on your back and float with the rip. It might carry you back to shore. Signal for help by raising one arm and calling out to attract attention. If you're a strong swimmer and not tired, try to swim parallel to the shore or toward the breaking waves, but don't try to swim against the rip current. Also, there are a lot of marine animals that can cause harm. Jellyfish can be very dangerous. The tentacles have thousands of tiny stinging cells that releases toxins into your skin, causing immediate pain. You'll see red welts, whip-like marks, and swelling. Also, nausea, vomiting, headache, muscle pain, and possibly difficulty breathing and respiratory failure. 
Deaths are rare, but do happen. If you get stung, rinse the area with vinegar, don't rub it, try to remove the tentacles with tweezers, and get medical attention. There's also the blue-ringed octopus, which is small but highly venomous and has a potentially lethal bite, cone snails with venomous harpoons, stonefish with venomous spines, both can cause pain, paralysis, and eventually respiratory distress. Back on land, stay away from kangaroos. They're not really dangerous, but the large males can be aggressive, especially during the breeding season. Wombats are generally docile, but have powerful legs and sharp claws. Dingo attacks are rare, but can happen. And emus have been known to attack on rare occasion as well. Coming in from the sky, magpies have a terrible reputation, but in history have only caused three deaths. One caused by tetanus, a second when an elderly cyclist crashed his bike while trying to avoid being dive-bombed by the birds, and another when a baby died while her mother was trying to protect her from a swooping magpie. Cassowaries are birds but can't fly. Rather, they jump and get up to seven feet off the ground. They're considered the world's most dangerous bird, and it's said they've killed many indigenous people. But there's only one documented murder by the bird in 1926. A 16-year-old boy named Philip McLean was attempting to beat a cassowary to death with clubs when the bird charged and knocked him to the ground and then kicked him in the neck. He got up, ran for a short time, but then died from a hemorrhaging blood vessel in his neck. And that's because a cassowary has a long, straight, murderous nail, which can sever an arm or eviscerate an abdomen. So I would definitely just avoid that bird altogether. Extreme weather happens in Australia, so be prepared and watch for warnings. Australia is prone to heat waves with temperatures soaring to high levels during certain times of the year. There are cyclones or hurricanes in northern and western Australia that can bring heavy rains, strong winds, flooding, and widespread damage. Brush fires are a recurring threat, especially during hot and dry periods. Flooding is a common natural disaster. Northern Australia also experiences tropical storms and monsoons during the wet season. Tornadoes are less common, but severe when they happen. Guys, overall, Australia is a very safe destination for travelers. The crime rate is really low, and so is the likelihood of terrorism. Pickpocketing is generally uncommon when compared to other tourist places. Gun ownership is illegal, basic health care is accessible, violent crime is low, but vehicle break-ins are common, and robberies of safe deposit facilities are common at inexpensive hotels and hostels. Australia is so safe, though, that the 2021 Global Peace Index ranked Australia 16th safest in the world just after Sweden. The leading cause of death in Australia is heart disease and dementia, so maybe try to eat healthy if you visit. And the leading cause of death for tourists is motor vehicle accidents and water-related incidents. Keep in mind that Australia drives on the left side of the road and watch out for wildlife. Other things to keep in mind? Australians like to shorten a lot of words. Australians are Aussies. McDonald's is macas. Football is footy. Woolworths is woolies. And avocado is just avo. There's no need to talk about controversial things while you're there. Stay away from topics like indigenous affairs, religion, or politics, and don't be overly argumentative because nobody likes that. Don't ride a bike without a helmet. Don't bring food through customs because there are really heavy fines. And don't litter or throw a cigarette butt out your car window. If you do find yourself in an emergency, the emergency number for Australia is 000. 
And remember, whenever you're traveling, always inform someone about your plans before going anywhere. Tell someone reliable where you're going, what you'll be doing, and when to expect you back. And my number one tip to staying alive on vacation is to pay attention to your gut. Max was last seen on April 1st, 2005 in Port Campbell, Victoria. He was 19 years old when he went missing and will be 39 years old in 2024. He is 6 feet 2 inches tall, had a slim but muscular build, shoulder length, wavy blonde hair, fair complexion, and blue eyes. Hereditary male baldness occurs in his family, so he could be bald or balding by now. He was last seen wearing a blue windbreaker, white t-shirt, jeans, carrying a light blue backpack, and a multicolored clutch bag. If you have any information that could help locate Max, please call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-333-000 or the National Missing Persons Unit at 1-800-000-634. Or you can make a report online at crimestoppers.com.au. There is still a $5,000 reward for any useful information about Max. Detective Senior Sergeant Asensio has not given up on his search for Max even though his father has passed away. His family is still looking for him and the detective urges anyone with information to please come forward. Saying in the Australian news, hopefully he is reading this and I encourage Max and anyone who knows his whereabouts to get in contact with us so we can provide some closure to the family. And finally, remember to leave a review and rate this podcast five stars if you like the show, or hell, even if you don't. But either way, feel free to let me know what you think. Please follow The Last Trip on Instagram at The Last Trip Crime Pod and subscribe on Patreon to support the show. You'll get extra research, videos, photos, and updates, and even learn about my personal travels. That's patreon.com slash the last trip podcast. I'm Jamie Beebe, bringing you your last trip and signing off until the next one. Thanks for listening.